0: Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club, guest author of the month. I, I, I. The resonant voice of Malika Ndlovu, a poet herself who came to share and celebrate the moment at the Woman's Own Book Club and the launch of Beyond Truth's Edge, the second anthology of poems by the Cape Cultural Collective. Well, three of the 15 poets whose work is included came to read their work. It was Zenaria Barnes, Afia Omar and the legendary Diana Ferris. But first, we needed to know more about the Cape Cultural Collective. When did they start and who are they? One of the original members, Zenaria, explained... But first, project manager of the book, June Knight. The Cape Cultural
1: Collective began in 2007, and Zanaria was there. And why it started, a group of cultural activists and activists from the 80s, plus some young poets and singers and musicians, decided there was a need for a cultural organisation that bridged barriers, crossed divides, brought people together even so many years after 1994. Um, Me, at the moment, I am the project manager, one of the project managers for poetry book and also for the cultural programs, and I've been part of the CCC since about
0: 2014, 15, thereabouts. I think the word manager is a very appropriate because anything that involves a lot of people actually does need a bit of administration. But before we get onto the admin aspect, tell us a little bit about the the beginnings, that that first flush of we need this. What did we need, and why did we need it?
2: So I think that when we first got together, as uh, June explained, this uh, group of people, there was no long-term plan in mind. We just were getting together to bring artists together, and. And the initial gathering was actually at a pub in uh, Loop Street, I think it was, called Katu. It was an Irish pub where we competed with uh, the journalists that would come there to watch and chat and drink. And we would basically perform poetry or sing or do those kinds of things. And then later we moved to the District 6 Museum. And it was at the District 6 Museum where we thought that maybe we should begin to formalize things a little bit and give ourselves a name. So for the first few months, we didn't actually have a name. And then we sat there and we were starting to get audiences, etc. And then we started to structure it sort of into monthly programs and we came up with a name after sort of discussing, you know, what it could be. I remember people saying if we call this Cape Cultural Collective it's going to be CCC and it's going to be like Cape City Council, but it was no longer that was no longer what it was called, although there's another CCC now which have been concerns raised by uh, some of the members, but we said we're the Cape Cultural Collective. It's it uh, references place, it references what we do, and it references our attitude, which is one which believes in collaboration and
0: collective endeavour. Yeah. It doesn't however reference who you are, who were these people, obviously you knew one another somehow yes. before you spread the net wider. Who were you all, and how did you know one another? Okay, so many of us, the older
2: ones, um, including myself, um, we knew each other in the 70s and 80s. We were all activist, social justice activists at the time. Many of us, though, also did cultural things during that time. So, for example, in the 80s, I was a singer. And um, I used to basically open many and close many mass meetings all over the Cape, UDF meetings. So I was always known as a singer. In the 80s, not really as a poet And uh, Mansoor Jaffa And others were also Playing instruments, but of course We couldn't give full expression To that side of ourselves At the time, because we were busy Trying to get to, well, what we hoped Would be our liberation So that sort of was a Something that we kind of did ...at these events. They didn't take place necessarily in between only. They were always connected to the struggle. And that is how we defined our art even at that time in relation to the struggle. And then, I think it was in 2007, where there were some initiatives happening, and we had lost contact with each other in in many respects, you know, we'd see each other at odd events. But we kind of then came together, Uh, one of our comrades from that period, from Hanover Park, had passed away, for example, and His wife had asked us, because she knew all of us, to come perform. So songs that we'd performed in the 80s, there was Miriam Makiba's very famous Piece of Ground, which I used to sing in the 80s. They asked us to please come sing those songs at this memorial in Andover Park. Also, one of our famous poets who is in this book, Chris Ferndale, he had been working with a group of poets at the IJR, the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation, younger poets, so we brought those younger poets and us oldies together in the same room at Katu, and I've explained already the rest mm-hmm. and then how we developed from there. We only finally registered the Kai Cultural Collective as an entity in 2017, mm-hmm. 17 or 18. So for all that time, we were very informal. We felt that... Uh, You know, there was always this applying for funding, you actually need to register, but it will impose all kinds of restrictions upon us. So we liked that, but eventually we felt the need to formalize and then get a board and structure and so on. And we became far more structured and then COVID happened.
0: Well, yes, and thereby hangs many tales. (laughs) But it's interesting what you say about the... As soon as you say 80s and activism, it places you in a time and place and a sort of sense of what was going on. And we have all sort of moved, things have moved on, lest we forget, you know, those things, we still have the impact of those things with us. And it's interesting that you brought on the younger poets. Did you make an active decision to move? Because... Activist painting, activist poetry, activist art, activist theatre—it's very sort of stamped with that sort of thing. Did you make a, uh, an active decision to move away or forward, or how did you work with that?
2: I think um, maybe in the 80s, where the far sort of defined narrow maybe sense of how our art could be defined and how we deployed our art and I think by the time that we started engaging especially with younger people, there were newer issues or other issues that were also, you know, in the post-94 period and so while we always and still have this idea of a social justice framework which kind of informs us and which if you read the book you will see flows through the book Life is about lots more than that. There's the sort of macro and the micro and the in-between. So, for example, love, which I suppose we didn't really write about in that time because it might have been regarded as frivolous, came to the fore far more in our poetry, just music, dance, celebration. So it's a far more integrated sense of what art is and how essential and integral it is really to our lives and to living and to living full lives, because embracing art, essentially, it unlocks a certain element, very emotional, it resonates. When you write a poem, you write it for yourself, but it travels, and it will resonate with others. So it's very personal, but at the same time, if you take it into a public space, like a book or a performance space, you're engaging with others. So it's very Interactive, and I think what is important is is that essentially, while there is the social justice underpinning, it's not so cut and dry that that's all it needs to be. But I believe any social justice struggle or engagement cannot take place without art.
0: Yeah. Yes. Here. Here. (laughs) That's, that's really well put. And as you say, art is, is essential for everything, but art has many forms, a bit like social justice, so there are many issues within yeah. social justice. Art, June, the Cape Cultural Collective is not... I mean, pri- poetry is primarily what we're here to talk about, but it's not just poetry, is it? Just, no, just give us the other wings, as it were. Well,
1: it's a collective, which is how we operate, and also it has various projects... And at the moment, it has two choirs, which is the Rosa Senior Choir and the Junior Rosa Choir. And that was named after the Cape Malay wedding song Rosa. And the choir started by taking the iconic song Rosa, and it was translated into the three regional languages English, Afrikaans, and Isikosa. Because the one thing about those two choirs is they sing in all three languages. And they draw their membership from all across the Cape, because that's the one thing that the CCC still believes in doing, is that we still need to bring people together. And so we actively do that, and we are conscious about it. We don't just sit and say, oh, it will happen. We make sure it happens. Then we also have the Poetry Collective, and we have cultural programs, which... Stopped due to COVID,
0: went online, and will hopefully come back in person. All this and writing too because you know we go back to the thing about having to have somebody as a manager to administrate it to make sure everybody gets all the emails and all that sort of stuff but the writing itself do you do you write Jim no no okay fair enough you, you, you can go with that okay but you write yes. don't you and yes. and have you all can you give us a little bit of when you started why you started you, you've alluded to it you know the 80s activism social justice but when and why did you start I started
2: writing when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and then it wasn't sort of public, you know. It was just writing for, you know, poetry, etc. And I attended Harold Cressy High School in the Cape here in Rowland Street, and we had the most brilliant teachers. And they encouraged us to express ourselves, Mrs. Keys, Mrs. Adrian, Mr. Adrian, and a few others. And we basically were encouraged to write and express ourselves at those events. We, uh, For a school that was so-called colored, we had cultural events. We had concerts where we could sing, people could play the instruments, etc. And it was really in the 80s proper that I started sort of writing, but also not publishing. It was the first time was through the Cape K- Cultural Collective that actually provided the platform for people like myself to then publish. So I think writing kind of... Some people discovered it late. Some people, like Diana, who I met when I was very young, at 18 years old. I met Diana, and she was already a celebrated poet. And so someone to aspire to was Diana Ferris, you know. She was, She was. in fact, I said this morning, I'm performing on the same program with Diana today. It's so exciting. <laughs> but we sort of, she knew me as a singer, and I knew her as a poet, et cetera. So we'd often perform at the same events, but in different capacities. Yeah. And it's only in later years that my poetry, my writing has come uh, more to the fore. And I think nowadays, if anything, I'm no more as a writer and poet than as a singer. I haven't sung in a long time. So it is more the writing that is essentially, because writing is something that is very. You can do it at any time. You have a thought that pops into your head. Nowadays we have, if we don't have books and pens on us, most of us have phones. So, you know, if there's something, you see something, you're inspired by something, you can quickly put the first two lines down in your phone to come back to later. And there's so many issues to deal with in our spaces, in our world, that writing about it is a kind of a processing And poetry as a sort of dense form of writing is one of the ways in which one can really kind of concretize, express one's sort of deepest thoughts, feelings, and so on. And, of course, we were exposed to many poets in the struggle. Pablo Neruda, Bertolt Brecht, and these were our um, inspirations. Nikki Giovanni was an African-American poet at the time. We would often read their poems at events, not necessarily
0: our own, except if it was Diana, of course. (laughs) I'm longing to move forward into the new generation of poets and whether or not at schools they're being encouraged to write poetry, to be creative, but that's perhaps another story for somebody a little younger who's going to talk to us in just a minute. But Diana, I think I want to welcome you here especially because you have been heralded as the uh, Mama Poetry, so maybe you too can take us back a century or two and just tell us when it began for you and why. Before you do, Diana, for those very few people who don't know who you are, who are you? Oh.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I was born in Worcester and matriculated in 1972, came to Cape Town... And we had protests at the University of the Western Cape. And uh, then there wasn't any money for me to stay, and I went to work. And in 1988, I bought my own little car and came for part time studies. I completed eventually my postgraduate uh, studies in women's and gender studies. I turned 70 this year, I'm very proud of oh, it. Nice <laughs> <job>. <laughs>
0: <Nice job. laughs> So when did you start actually writing, and why? I grew up in a very
3: politically conscious house or family. And, you know, at th- that time in school, you had to be able to stand in front of the inspector with your hands held like that and recite a poem. And I, was, I could do it very well because my mother and father recited poetry for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother, and my father did the Charge of the Light Brigade. So I think that's all things, you know, that stayed here. And I was about 15 when I wrote. I looked at pictures in newspapers. There was a train accident in which many black people died. And I I was very sad about it. I wrote about it. The second one was when the people of Dwerinbaai were standing on the beach waiting for the fishing boat to come in when it sank in front of them. And the pictures in the newspapers, again, made me write about it. But unfortunately, I know what it is about, but I don't have it because my mother was cleaning out the cupboards, and she threw out everything. <laughs> and she threw out my book with my two poems in. So, yeah, I can only tell about it, but I don't know. So, yes, and I was writing, but one couldn't show everybody, as any said. I mean, it could be, if there was one line they could arrest you for. There were laws to say, okay, this law, you are arrested under this law. So I only came, when I came to UWC in 1991, I joined with the Afrikaans Department, and they published stuff of me in their journal. But in 1994, a short story of mine was published in Disset Afrikaans. By Angie Cross, she she loved the story. It's a, a true story, sort of. And from then on, I never stopped writing.
0: I bet. I thought w- one of the things about poetry is that when you say I am a poet, you are also a poet. One is not exclusively a poet because simply because you can't make any money being a poet, <laughs> or you can't live by poetry alone. No, you can no, try. No, no, so yes. you would have been doing other things. So was poetry something that you did right on the back of envelopes in the bus, in a taxi, at home? When and where and how do you write poetry? Do you steal the time from something else? Oh, I st- stole such a lot from UWC. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs>
3: Talking about that, uh, I can now be honest and say I stole a lot from of their time. Yes, uh, as you said, in little books and, and as said, maybe on the phone quickly, and remember, try to remember, but no you you must 't rely on that because you forget, mm-hmm. and so on yes that 's how i how, how I do it. Can I tell a, a specific moment <laughs> you know the they discovered the wreck of a ship here at the Cape, mm-hmm. the sayose mm-hmm. uh, It was en route from uh, Mozambique to Brazil in seventeen ninety four and it came around the Cape. It sank. And then Jacob Badenos from Ezekiel Museum, he got the first piece that he brought up, and then they were going to have a media release. They asked me to write a poem for the event. And uh, I said, and I said... And I was only at work when I got inspired. I don't know, I had to steal the time. So I remember it was one Friday, the poem came, and the poem came in Afrikaans, because I'm also a slave descendant, and uh, February is our clan, and um, the slaves were sold. They were named and the months they were sold into. So anyway, the Friday, the Afrikaans part of the poem came. And I thought, okay, at home, the weekend, the other part will come. Nothing came. It was only when I came back to work
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and the other part came. And, it
0: <laughs> and
3: uh, the, the Tuesday night late, the, uh, uh, the Monday night, because the Tuesday I had to go and perform, late uh, that night, the Monday night, the, the last part of the poem came. So I've got to give respect to UWC for <laughs>
0: allowing me. <laughs> you know, I really love the way you say the poem came because it's a here comedy poem you know Excuse through you. the door yeah. uh, you know you, you have to sort of wait I suppose for the muse t- to strike yes. and, and one might not oh. know but you know Diana I can't look at you without thinking of Saki Bartman and I, I as I look at you I always want to call you Saki um you w- may. when did when did Saki <laughs> come into your life tell us I know it's a big story the Saki Bartman story but you and Saki you are bonded tell us how she came into your life and the poem about her I remember
3: my auntie told me, you know, in Afrikaans, what, what, what do the French think, keeping her there in a glass cage? And I wasn't really aware that my grandmother said it. But when I came to UWC, it was essentially Yvette Abrams' work around Sarki that made me very aware. And look, she did her honours and a master's and a doctorate in it. And I also started studying Women's and gender studies. And so when I got a fellowship to the University of Utrecht in the mm-hmm. Netherlands, there we learned about her again. And well, I felt very, very homesick. And I one evening stood at my window and I said, and My mother died the previous year. Mm-hmm. I missed my mother. And I said, If I miss my mother this much, how much more did she miss hers?
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And that is when it seemed to me as if I heard a voice saying, I want to go home, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. And I cried and I went to my desk and I wrote that first line, I've come to take you home. Mm-hmm. And I never know how prophetic it was going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see you walk through the door, and I hear those lines, and it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. I'm going to move to our third <laughs> poet in your lovely red scarf. Tell us about you. you. Give me your name and tell me about you. My
5: name is Afifa Omar. I am 27 years old. I'm a poet, a student of psychology and a student of life. I grew up in Cape Town but my parents are from Somalia and so poetry was a way of me making sense of that dual identity and a way of a way for me to talk about all the things that I couldn't talk about because I grew up in a house where the important thing was survival (laughs) and, you know, um, just adjusting to this whole new world. And so I felt really displaced from a very young age. I thought it was because I was a foreigner and grew up and found out that everyone feels displaced in this country, even if they really belong here. And so that's how poetry happened for me.
0: We were talking earlier about having been sort of encouraged to write poetry at school. You're closer to school than certainly I am, and most of us here. Were you
5: encouraged? Was poetry something that was even on the curriculum at school? We had poetry, but we did a lot of poems that old white men wrote that we didn't relate to and so no one really enjoyed poetry in school and so when I started writing poetry I actually wrote my first poem when I was nine years old and it sounded more like rap Um, and it was like with all these childish rhyming lines but I felt it was so cathartic it was such a cathartic moment for me because I was really upset about something and I felt like I couldn't I wasn't being heard and so when I wrote that poem I just felt that therapeutic you know I really I realized the power of writing in that moment. And so I always thought it was a strange thing that I was doing. I didn't relate it to the poetry that I learned about in school. And it wasn't until in my last year of high school, in grade 12, and the year following that, that I started to discover spoken word poetry. And I stumbled across, I, I will never forget, I stumbled across um, El Hello on YouTube. And I thought, wow, like, she really mirrored my my experience of life, which was writing about migration and womanhood and all those things that I've been writing about and I was like, "Oh, so I've been writing poetry <laughs> um that's what it was, and so from there onwards, it was less of a closet thing and something I could like express and say, "You know what I'm writing poetry and it makes sense okay.
0: it always seems to me and this is a question for all of you it seems to me that poetry has two faces it's here comes the poetry here comes the poem and it's about writing it and it's about getting whatever it is out of you onto paper the second face is when you have to deliver it to other people which, which seems to be two very different things is it a big jump from writing it this
5: visceral piece of work and then delivering it to people is it a very big jump for you? I'd say it was quite a big jump. I was such a shy um, young person, and I remember the first time I actually performed in front of people, I was quite peer pressured, positive peer (laughs) pressure. I stumbled upon a group called Cypher, it was a youth group, a youth poetry group in Cape Town, and I remember our mentors were so encouraging and there was a competition and they were like okay everyone in the group is going to perform together and so I kind of just got dragged along and I performed and it was so surprising for me that people could relate to what I wrote because I was writing for myself and so for the first few times that I performed actual poetry in Cape Town I remember thinking oh no I'm just going to be pouring my heart out (laughs) and um, it's going to be so strange but what it taught me is that our feelings are so common that everything we're going through, everyone else is also going through it. And so um, we like to think we're little islands, but um, through writing, we really relate with one another. Um, So that was really interesting. Wow.
2: And what about you? There are many poems that I write which I will never publish or perform because, as Afifa says, it's a part of processing maybe sometimes very difficult and complicated Situations in one's mind, and then the more kosher poems I will, I, <laughs> I will write and perform. Yeah, um, there is a difference, and I will select which ones I feel comfortable performing and sharing with others. And there are others that will never see the light of day. Oh, but you they will.
0: Them. Now everybody wants to know them. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what about you, Diana? It strikes me that you have no, nothing to hold back. What, the difference between writing and performing.
3: Yeah, I write to heal myself. Mm. So the very first poem, I, um, I had a difficult childhood, and the very first poem I wrote about that, I was telling myself, I must read it. You know what, I was shivering, and, and then one evening I read it, and so many people came to me. As she said, you know, we're all waiting to hear something that we can identify with. And then I realized that there were so many people who wanted to hear this poem i cannot hold back mm. and of course with the influence uh, but once once i've gotten over that kind of vulnerability i say to myself i won't hold back i I will, I will perform it because there's others who are waiting for it and when i have workshops i tell the the delegates i tell them that is the reason what, why you must write because there are others who's waiting
0: well, we are all waiting, so I'm <laughs> going to say thank you very much, and then we're going to hear some of your poetry, so thank you very much. <laughs> thank, thank, you. thank you. Diana Ferris queuing us up nicely there to hear from the poets, starting with scenario. Uh, we all had three poems in the poetry book, and I'm going to do the very first
2: poem of mine in the book called Get Up. This is sort of the vulnerability that there's some things that you're vulnerable and you feel it's okay to share it. And I know other people have these kinds of feelings, as Afifa referred to. And Diana. Get up. It is way past noon. I have not stepped out of my bed. I hope the veil is lifting from my shadowed eyes and from my head. It feels like I have been drifting through the deepest opaque fog. Now I have been prodded by a divine lightning rod. Amazing what can trigger years of suppressed painful thought. My body led the way, muscles no longer overwrought. My mind it finally followed after the longest of delays. I have a history to complete in the approaching days. I cannot disappoint by being lost in shame and full retreat. I have to rise from this deep slumber. I have myself to meet. And not a moment too soon. Yes, I have been feeling like a witless, forlorn loon. The narrow confines of this space explode. It has taken quite a while for this damaged file to download. My thoughts scatter everywhere as the pain disintegrates. Get up. Get up. Face this life work ahead. It cannot be too late. Get up. Get out of that self-defeating bed. It is time to be reborn with grace and the unfolding
0: of the inevitable new dawn. Yeah! <clears throat> Scenario Baran's Getting Up. And next, Afia Omar.
5: I'm going to recite a piece that's more of a collage of imagery, and it's exploring projection as a coping mechanism and so the first line is actually about the first time I heard, sorry for the world, Guy um, a fucking foreigner thrown at my mom across a park and growing up and realizing the parts that I hate about myself is the parts that I judge other people by. And so um, a lot of the discrimination and hatred that I experienced as a young person in South Africa might speak to the pain that is experienced in this country. The moment I flinch from my reflection in the mirror is the moment a man throws a slur at my mother across the park. The boy from class has my grandfather's face but considers me a foreigner. Ships circle us like a mecca, but this time they do not carry human cargo. My lover and I watch the horizon from a luxury sunset cruise and drink Coca-Cola from plastic wine cups. My man is from nowhere like me, a mouthful of borrowed currency. His tongue stumbles around my father's language awkwardly and as the depress of the past surrounds us, I think. Maybe I was never safe in this country, but I am definitely safe in his arms. Wow. Afia Omar, and finally,
0: Diana Ferris. I'll also read the first poem in
3: this collection, and I want to thank Cape Cultural Collective. You're doing awesome work. I remember there was a time when you always phoned me and said, oh my goodness, again. <laughs> but I didn't know what you were going to groan into. The dry days of my childhood... I often wander into the days hidden in the forest and search through the woods for the cuckoo's nest, only to find the thorn of branches and the old grown tree on which many of our secrets lie. The landscape is different, the forest is fading. Behind the naked oak trees the mountain stands dry. Why do I dream of the drought? the desiccated days that had us bound to a spot in the ground where we fervently prayed for water to be? Why didn't the sun scorch the injustice stamped on our bodies, marked in our minds? Why weren't we waxed like mummies preserved in black one day to be resurrected as reborn, as saved? Was it in God's great plan that separate development at its height during the sixties should be accompanied by a drought so fierce it spoke in fire blazing away the hopes of the doomed? Oh, the dry days of my childhood, the barren field that was my mother's body, the sucked dry steps my father's feet, the unborn thoughts my aborted dreams. Do not ask me to forget how it was. Do not ask me to forget my past. Ask of my dreams envisioning my mother in a grass-green dress and me at her nipples gurgling a contented baby sigh. Ask of my dreams imagining my father crafting his talents into a water-holding bay. Oh, the dry days
4: of
0: my childhood. Thank you. Well, such as the indelibility of Diana's work that another of her poems was specifically requested. She explains its origins. But I didn't tell you
3: uh, how, how the title and how the poem came about first. It is, I battled to get it, and then I remember what my uncle told me. My uncle said that we, the, the February that we were also called Dimas Beakers, the Mozambicans. And uh, speakers show you as how what the people did with the Afrikaans language, speakers before it probably became Moorsambickers. Then I realized, okay, I've got my poem. We, the Februarys, were part of those people on the ship, and I must call it. I must refer back to them, and, and honor them. So my poem's title came. My name is February. My name is February. Mijn naam is Februari, Ik is verkoop, my borste, privaadele, my oe, my brein is nog niet myne. Soos die saaihoos zei, loop ik opgekap, word ik telkens gesinkt dier een ander storm, geen Jesus wat op die water loopt voor mij. Mijn naam is Februari, Ik zoek nog die stang van die stuur, want onder water le die familie die ma aan pa'se hand die kind aan ma'se rock spand hoe diep blee hulle aan wat er kant my naam is Febe Wari opgeveil, verkoop, die hoogstebieder het geen vergoeding aangebied vir dit, my rechte naam, gesteel, gesink, onder water leed het nog, samen met die familie, wrakstukke van die saai ten gronde loop dier wind, briesende branders, waar die buitse hele toekomst besluit, die perfect in die wal uitsmuit, my naam is Febubari, die maasbiker op die saai zo soos ik genoem, to my heerse moedertaal gestal te kry To tongen met mekaar begin te knoop En letters a vrye gang begin te loop en het desperate poging en hoop dat machten ook nie hier die identiteit moet stroop Word ek die maasbiker Net een naam Onder a ander lucht gekraam En diep gevul met skaam My name is February. I reshaped this landscape. My hands wove the patterns of the vineyards, my feet pressed the grapes, and I was paid with the wine. I carry alcohol fetal syndrome children on my back. My name is February. Wow. I still march on the eve of December 1st when I walk the cobblestones of this city, crying in desperation remember the emancipation of the slaves. My name is February. Two hundred years after the say I was given the vote. They said I was free. But don't you see how often I am submerged, way down. I'm the sunken, the soiled, forgotten, and yet memory will not leave me. My name is February, standing at Third Beach. But no one comes to look for me. No one waves from the dunes. No bridges back to Mozambique. My name is February. I shall be resurrected, brought to the surface, unshackled, unchained, unashamed. My name is
4: February.
0: Thank you. Wow. So, just a taste there of the work that appears in Beyond Truth's Edge. And if you'd like to know more about the book and about Cape Cultural Collective, do check their site, it's capeculturalcollective.org.za, capeculturalcollective.org.za. Or check their Facebook page, it's Cape Cultural Collective. But closing the event, in their honour, was the golden voice of Malika and Global.
4: truth of who we are, indestructible stars housed only for a while in these temples of flesh. Once our memories are refreshed, we can see, we can see that this body, this life is simply a veil, a vision a temporary reality that each and every one of us is more that we hold a perfection within somehow always just beyond our imagining we are human yet light beings portals of love makers of peace creators of beauty We are healers. We are believers inherently. Rediscovering our way home. Home. of earth time where free is our natural state and love (laughs) love is the only way the only way we are born to bring light born to bring light to honor the gift of each and every moment Each and every form of life.